be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy when others are fearful. This classic Buffett quote has echoed through the ranks of investors for decades. But does the data support the methodology? Does investor sentiment, which for many investors is widely considered a contrarian indicator, have enough predictive power to warrant our time and attention? In today's show, we'll explore investor sentiment from all angles and help discover which readings, if any, give predictive power to future stock market returns or trends. You're listening to the Option Alpha podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. Hey everyone, this is Kirk here again from optionalpha.com, working every single week to make this the most popular investing podcast offered online because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you consistently play smarter, more profitable trades. So thank you so much for tuning in to today. On today's show, number 183, we are going to be walking through the predictive power of investor sentiment. We've touched on this a number of times on the daily podcast, on previous podcasts before, but we want to dive into it a little bit more here today and talk through some more research and data that's out there and some different stuff that we found on investor sentiment, which I think can help kind of pull the picture together, hopefully for you as something that you may want to use or may not want to use moving forward. We know that investor sentiment is a really hot topic because of everything that we've gone through just in 2020 with all the fluctuations in the market from extreme highs to extreme lows and back to extreme highs again, at least at the time of this recording. And so sentiment is obviously a really popular thing to track and to use as a resource and news spin. You know, investor sentiment is really high or sentiment is really low. So it's really catchy and it can catch you off guard in many cases if you don't know exactly if it's predictive and if so, what readings or what types of levels give it enough predictive power. So the first thing that we're going to dive into today is really kind of Again, revisiting, because we've talked about this on some of the webinars and some of the videos that we have, but again, revisiting some of the data that's out there. Now, the best source for data on this currently, when it comes to, I would say, more of a objective investor sentiment, even though it is very survey-based, is the AAII survey that they do every single week for investors. And it's only for people who are part of AAII, obviously, but they ask their investors every single week, you know, basically what's your expectation on the market, bullish, bearish, et cetera, blah, 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 or whatever the questions are specifically. But it always comes down to what people's sentiment is on the market. Now, I have one opinion with this, which is something that we'll get to later on with another index that tracks something a little bit different. But my rub with this has always been that what people say And what people do are completely different things and sometimes don't always jive or line up together. So I think that the sentiment survey that AAII puts on is great and other sentiment surveys that other people do are great, but we also need to take it with a grain of salt in that what people say they're going to do or how they feel doesn't necessarily always mean that they're going to react the exact same way or that their portfolio is positioned the exact same way. So take that with a grain of salt as we keep moving forward. But what AAII did, which I thought was really good, and we'll link up to this in the show notes over at optionoff.com slash show 183. Again, that's just number 183, optionoff.com slash show 183. We'll have a link to all these resources for you and you can grab them there as well as charts and graphs of things we come up with on the show. 
But what they did is they actually did some data and research on the sentiment behavior and then the subsequent market returns, which I thought was very interesting and of course, very insightful because I love this kind of stuff. So they went and they looked at the instances where bullish sentiment, bear sentiment was really extreme and they measured it in levels of standard deviations. So from all of the time period that they collect sentiment data, what were the extremes as a standard deviation metric? So was bullish sentiment one, two, three standard deviations above its average? Was bearish sentiment one, two, three standard deviations or below its average? You know, however they were looking at it. But they looked at this and then they calculated those extreme readings relative to the subsequent 26 week, which is six months, and 52 week, which is 12 month performance in the S&P 500. Now, you could use a lot of different things as your index and metric. Of course, the S&P is a good benchmark. I would have loved to see them use some other things too, like what was sentiment in bonds particularly versus just the overall market? What was sentiment in gold versus the overall market? So that's one thing where I I look at data like this and I'm like, yeah, you know, I wish we had some more data on it, but it is what it is. So here's some of the things that I thought were really interesting findings. So again, they looked at the sentiment and the extremes. Then they looked at the next six months and 12 month periods of performance to see if really sentiment was a contrarian indicator at all. And if it was, what worked? In the 44 periods where bullish sentiment was more than two standard deviations above average. So 44 times out of all the time periods that they looked at, bullish sentiment, so the number of people who were bullish on the market was more than two standard deviations above its average. When they tracked those 44 time periods, what they found is that in the following six months, the S&P was only up 48% of the time. Now, to me, that's well within the standard range or error that would say it's basically half, right? So even with extreme levels of bullish sentiment, the market did not always fall from those levels. In fact, half of the time it was up and half of the time it was down. Now, when they looked at extraordinarily low levels of bullish sentiment and optimism, it actually worked better as a contrarian signal. So not that people were overly optimistic, but that the level of people who were bullish on the market or had optimism was really, really low actually ended up being a decent contrarian signal. So bullish sentiment being below two standard deviations from its historical mean or average only happened 16 times during this history that they did, this data history, which was quite a long period of time. The average six-month gain for the S&P following that low reading was about 14%. So that to me is significant. I would definitely say that that's something where you look at that and you say, okay, high optimism and bullishness doesn't necessarily mean the market's going to turn over right away, but a level of low optimism potentially means that people are being way too fearful when they should actually be jumping in at some level and starting to buy up the market. Not that it happened all the time, but that they should potentially look at starting to do it. So, okay, very interesting takeaway for sure. 
They also said that the S&P rose by medium of 5.6% during the 26-week period following unusually high bearish sentiment. So now this is looking at the number of people who are registering as bearish sentiment, not just a low count of people who are bullish on the market, but a high level of people who are bearish on the market actually was followed by the S&P generally rallying in the next 26-week period, which is basically six weeks. And it said that high levels of pessimism, so a lot of people who are bearish, was followed by rising stocks 66.3% of the time. Again, to me, that's significant enough to say that when people are overly pessimistic or when people are really not as bullish as they are at all, like really low levels of people who are bullish, super high levels of people who are pessimistic, generally leads to market bottoms. So I think that particular point in their research, and I've seen this in other places too, is definitely a good contrarian thing that you should pay attention to, or at least have in the back of your mind. If actually you go back to the show we did last week on emotional intelligence, this kind of really plays well into that where when people are overly fearful and letting their emotions really get the best of them, terrible headlines, huge news stories, panic selling, it's probably a good time to jump in and start nibbling. Not that you can pick the bottom on all those because you can't, but you have a pretty good likelihood that you're starting to find some sort of bottom or bottoming process in the market. Now, one of the other things that they saw, which I thought was pretty interesting, was this idea that the level of sentiment doesn't have to peak in order to see a reversal in the market. Now, this to me is an interesting takeaway. And some of the interesting takeaways that I thought were pretty profound that we've talked about before especially on the daily podcast where we talked about sentiment about two and a half years ago, we talked about this on there. But this idea that when stocks and markets reverse, it doesn't have to come from a peak in sentiment. You don't have to have an exuberance of people who are buying in order to turn the market over. And you don't have to have an exuberance of people who are panic selling in order to find a market bottom. So you only have to look at a couple periods, but one period was really right before the July 3rd through July 17th of 2008, literally right before the market started to crash in that summer, what you saw was you saw that bullish sentiment was at unusually low levels. So 23, 22, 25% bullish sentiment right before the markets were going to crash. Nowhere near extremely high levels of bullish sentiment and definitely not overly optimistic that would lead people to say, yes, this is definitely contrained. But yet the markets went through obviously progressively large losses, 20, 28%, 27%, 32% respectively in the weeks that followed that period. So that to me is really important to understand is that you don't always have to have these extreme readings in investor sentiment in order to see these major market tops and bottoms. This to me maybe plays into the camp of, okay, it's not a great of a contrarian indicator as possible because you would always want that to set up that way. And if it doesn't, then you don't really know if the level that you're seeing right now is really a high level, like should be taken seriously or not, because it doesn't always mean that it's going to have a reversal. So another thing that I thought was pretty interesting about this, and this is just my own like mini takeaway, is that when it comes to figuring out if you should actually use particularly sentiment surveys like this, where we survey people and ask them, are you bullish or bearish or whatever the case is. What I saw in the research was that typically you would find that people are generally bullish 
until markets go down, then they're bearish. And they're generally bearish until markets go up and then they become bullish. And you saw the sentiment survey kind of almost stick into one camp or another for long periods of time. So it's not like this indicator flip-flops every month where one week people are super bearish, the next week they're super bullish, the next week they're super bearish. It's not really how it happens. We don't see this flip-flop. It tends to stay on one end or one extreme until we see a major market shift. And that's because people are bullish. And if they're bullish and the markets go up, they remain bullish, right? It makes sense why they do it until some outside force causes them to change their sentiment. And so when it comes to that, I think that you can see these things stay in a high bullish reading, a low bearish reading for quite some time before the change actually happens. So that's important to me because it's not just that you get into these levels and then, oh yes, immediately the market's going to turn next month. It's not the case. I look at this and I say, okay, if people are really, really bearish on the market, we could be seeing a bottoming process happen in the next six months, right? And that's what the research would say is that 66.3% of the time it happened in the next six months. That doesn't mean it's going to happen in the next month. It doesn't mean it's going to happen in month five. It means it might happen by month six. And so if you just take that with a grain of salt and understanding that these processes actually have to kind of work themselves out over the course of a couple months, that a high reading or low reading does not mean that it's going to turn on a dime. Again, it helps potentially with your emotional intelligence and your management of positions to be cautious, to be looking out over the horizon, right? To be positioning your portfolio to say, okay, something potentially is going to start turning here. I need to start maybe shifting or anticipating that turn in the market or maybe that bottoming process, that topping process, but not that you should just totally say, yes, it's going to bottom 100%. We got to change the whole portfolio. Even saying that now, you can just hear how crazy that actually seems. But I think a lot of people do this where they just completely shift their whole portfolio based on one reading or one series of readings. So I thought that that was really important. I want to switch gears here a little bit and actually talk about a different one. And this one I think is going to be interesting. There's not a lot of data on it so far, but the data that they have collected on it is fascinating to me. And this one actually comes from TD Ameritrade and it's their IMX. So their IMX is basically this reading of investor movement, I think is what they call the investor movement index. And basically what they do is they take all of the data that they have on client accounts And I think they do it randomly. I don't think they do it on everybody at the same time, but they take these random like pockets of data and they basically look at what people are actually doing with their money. And you can read a little bit more about this. We'll put a link in the show notes page over at optionalpha.com slash show 183. But when you actually read a little bit about what they do in taking the average holding positions, the trading activity, the real kind of deltas, and like, are they adding to their account? Are they decreasing? Are they selling? Are they buying, et cetera? This to me is more interesting because you actually get a sense of what people are doing with their money versus what they say they're going to do with their money. What I think about the markets and then potentially what I do with the markets could be two different things. Hopefully they're not, but to some degree they might be. And I know for a lot of people who maybe answer the survey, they might have a really pessimistic view on the market, but maybe they haven't sold everything yet. And so I like the way that TD is trying to track this as kind of this investor movement index, kind of showing what people are actually doing with their account. 
because I think that it's a fascinating way in which we can figure out what people are doing with their money and if that has any correlation to potentially to market tops or to market bottoms. So when you go to the website, you can actually see a chart of this. We'll put this in the show notes page, but you can see a chart of this basically for the last couple of years. And what's interesting, if you look at just the last three years or so of this index, is that the time periods where the IMX or the investor movement index was really high actually kind of lines up in many cases with market tops, or at least periods in which the market stalls. And I think that's really the important point is that you look at December 2017, it was one of the highest readings on their metric and their chart, and the market completely stalled for about a year. And then the next highest reading, like the next peak in the graph was September of 2018. And that was right before the market went through a huge drawdown heading into Christmas, right? So those of you who remember kind of that last period in 2018, the market had a huge drawdown. Right before that, we saw a really high reading of the IMX. So this idea that a lot of people were buying into it, they had a lot of trading activity, a lot of net buys, et cetera, a lot of cash moving in, kind of the opposite of what you might expect. And so that potentially could have been a really good contrarian indicator to say, look, a lot of people are kind of plowing into this market and they're doing so at a fast pace, aggressively based on this metric. And that might be leading you to be a little bit more cautious about where you are in the cycle. Another one happened right at the beginning of 2020. So we started to see on the IMX, the indicators start to rise from September 2019 through January of 2020. We started to see this again, go through a little bit of a peak where people were starting to become a little bit more active, a little bit more net buys, a little bit more optimistic, right? That was the actual activity that we saw at least through TD's clients, which I mean, it's a lot, lot of clients that they have. So you could probably get a lot of good data in here. It's not like they have 10 clients. And again, we saw that kind of peak off. Now it's ironic that of course, the thing that pricked the bubble in this case was coronavirus, but the case could have been made, of course, if you didn't even know coronavirus existed, that it was the same thing happening generally again, where we had this exuberance of bullish sentiment and actual activity that kind of led to a market top, or at least a little bit of a partial market top. And the same thing happens actually in reverse. So when you look at IMX2, you can see the levels where people have really low levels of activity, a lot of net sales, et cetera, where the indicator kind of drops to lower levels actually ends up being time periods where markets start to bottom or go through a bottoming process. Not that they go V-shape all the time, but that they go through a bottoming process. They don't really kind of fall much further from there. So you take it with a grain of salt on all this stuff. I'm not saying you should use, oh, you got to use this, you got to use that. Of course, you take all this with a grain of salt. But what I think is really, really fascinating from some of these things with IMX and AAII is just that you get a generally an ebb and a flow where things get overbought, they get oversold. And it doesn't mean that things are going to turn on a dime because that's what people always assume is that things just turn like immediately, like tomorrow things shift and now they bottom. They don't, it's a process, but it tells you where you are generally in the process. So you can keep your head on a swivel a little bit so you can understand, okay, maybe people are starting to become more fearful. Maybe they're starting to become more greedy, right? And maybe we should start transitioning or at least be prepared for the expectation that things might change or shift. So those are the two ones I thought were really cool. We also did find another research study from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, which we'll link up to in the show notes. Really cool research. 
And what they did is they basically went through research on sentiment, like consumer sentiment. So different type, not just investor sentiment, but consumer sentiment, which I thought was a little bit different and momentum combined. And this I thought was really cool because I thought one of the takeaways that they kind of highlighted in here, which we'll go over here in a second, was that when you look at these things independently of one another, they're really not that great. But when you start combining them together and you start saying, okay, sentiment plus momentum, right? And combining indicators and technicals or methodologies, that's where a lot of power lies, I think, in trading. And it's not just a dovetail on this for a second. It's not that you find this actually just here in this one research report. You find this actually a lot of places. There's a lot of research out there on value and trend and trend and momentum. And it's not that these are all great as a standalone, but it's that you combine a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you get a much better performance of the overall portfolio. That's why we talked about a couple shows back, this idea of correlations. That's not just that you have to trade this and that. It's the combination of things that pull together that ultimately are better versus using them as standalones. It's also why we do not suggest using one technical indicator or one option strategy because independently, they're all okay. They're fine. Maybe they're not even that good independently, but it's a combination of them together in a portfolio that leads oftentimes to the best results. So what they did with the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco research report is they basically researched the combinations of, again, consumer sentiment and momentum to see if any of those two things together could potentially predict market returns in the S&P over the next couple months, really over the next month period. That to me is really aggressive because that's a very short time period to just predict the next month, but it is what it is. So we had some of these indicators that are kind of looking six months, 12 months. Some are looking obviously shorter. They did a shorter study to say, look, can we predict the next month of returns in the market based on something? And what they found is that when you look at the predictive power of just sentiment, it's pretty useless. In fact, we have a chart of it and we pulled this and we'll link to the resources and whatever that's pulled from their research report. But when you have a chart of sentiment and you try to plot the return of sentiment versus the return of the market, there's zero correlation. I mean, it's just all over the place. And the same thing actually is true of really momentum on that one month period. Like the momentum in the one month period really has no correlation with the market return in that period or very, very small correlation, which is not really significant. But what they did then is they took that and they said, okay, independently, they're useless. But if we multiply the 12-month change in consumer sentiment by metric of momentum, right, which is that momentum in the market, can we get something out of that? And what they found is that the sentiment and momentum combined together created a more robust predictor of one-month returns in the market. Specifically, what they found is that mainly when periods saw sentiment declining over the past year, so consumer sentiment on the decline over the last year, and the market recently going through a little bit of a decline was more predictive that the next month, of course, would be a decline. But you had to have both of those in place. You had to have consumer sentiment starting to wane and starting to drop, and you had to have momentum coming out of the market. And it basically meant that momentum was going to continue to go down right at that point. 
So just looking at momentum coming out of the market was not enough though. That's the thing. It's a lot of people look at this and say, oh, well, if you look at momentum and then negative momentum means there's going to be more momentum next month. It wasn't just that because momentum by itself was pretty useless. It wasn't really predictive. But when you overlaid like declining 12-month consumer sentiment, it ended up being a little bit more predictive of where the markets were going to go. And you can actually see this in the chart. It was cool. They kind of put this together and they said, look, here's the overlay and here's the the new regression. And basically was a little bit more predictive that as the markets go down and as momentum goes down, then the markets should continue to follow that trajectory moving forward. And it's at least statistically significant. I thought that that was pretty fascinating to see. It was on a very short time period, but it again tells us that sentiment changes and shifts over time. And that's like the same thing that continued for me personally. The biggest takeaway that I took out of all of this that we had was this idea that sentiment shifts over time and that it's these broad shifts in sentiment that create tops and bottoms in markets, not pinpoints of vertical sentiment spikes and then the market completely retraces the move. So to kind of wrap this up and again, talk about this main takeaway that I took from all of this and and really to kind of answer the question, like, is there predictive power in investor sentiment? Overly optimistic and overly pessimistic investors and consumers and attitudes and characteristics are usually typical of market tops and bottoms, but they don't create new stock prices to change direction all the time. That's the main takeaway that I took from this is that overly optimistic and overly pessimistic is usually a symptom of a market top or bottom, but it is not the leading force to change the market. It means you should be cautious, but you shouldn't look at that and say, yes, everyone's pessimistic. It's going to be a bottom or yes, everyone's really optimistic. It's going to be a market top. I think that you have to use sentiment because there are little pockets that are definitely predictive right? From the AI study, from, I mean, really kind of the empirical research of just like looking at it with IMX, from the research that the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco did, there's definitely pockets of predictability in sentiment extremes and trends in sentiment, especially coupled with momentum and things like that. But it's not enough to say that all the time at this one level or that one level, it's going to cause the market to completely 100% go in reverse. It just means that once we reach extremes, we reach extremes and it's more likely that we turn over the knot or stop going up or stop going down. We start to pause in that period. And if you understand that, and if that is a main takeaway, I think you'll be well positioned moving forward because when you see these extreme levels of sentiment and readings, you know, not to use like a crazy like analogy, but like that your spidey senses should be going off, that you should be on high alert, that there is an extreme level and that doesn't always mean that it's going to turn, but it means that we could be in the process of making that turn and you should look for a catalyst that could make that faster, right? So in the case of like the coronavirus, we were already at an extreme level. We've been there for quite some time, a couple months. The catalyst was just the coronavirus for that moment in time. So as we get to new extremes in either direction, 
what becomes the catalyst that could turn the ship, that could start to steer the market in a different direction. I think that's the main takeaway of this. And I think that it does give you a little bit of edge to understand that that happens in the market versus just completely ignoring it. So I'll reiterate what I said back when I did this show, kind of like the daily podcast version of this, which was much shorter, much more condensed. Didn't really have a lot of this other data that we kind of found since then. But one of the things I said on that show, and I'll reiterate here, is that I think that investor sentiment is something you should keep an eye on, but it's not something you need to religiously check every week. It's something that I definitely keep an eye on. And it's like a once a month, hey, let me check in on investor sentiment, make sure everything's good. Like, do I need to know anything? Is it extreme? Is it not? There's a lot of data providers, a lot of sources out there you can get it for. And I think it's something that you keep an eye on and you keep tabs on so you don't miss it. And so that it doesn't become something that you get blindsided by, like, oh, that's right. Investor sentiment was super high. Maybe I should factor it in, whatever. But by no means is it the basis for your portfolio construction. It is something that you can help as a tool in your toolbox, what they call a quiver in your hat. Basically, if that's wrong, let me know in the show notes. But a quiver in your hat, right? Something that or quill in your hat that you can use as a resource moving forward. And so hopefully that helps out. As always, if you guys want to get some of these graphs and some of these images, the links, resources, head on over to the show notes page, optionalpha.com slash show 183. Again, that's just the number 183, optionalpha.com slash show 183. And now our favorite part of the show, Trader Q&A, where we ask a question from one of our current members about options trading. Got a question you'd like to ask Kirk to answer live on the air? Just head on over to optionalpha.com forward slash ask and hit the record button to leave a message. That's optionalpha.com forward slash ask. And now here's today's question. Hey, Kurt, this is Hussain. I have been using your podcast and they're really helpful. I have a, a really important question from you. Um, one of the strategies that I use and you say that is one of the best is selling strangles and straddles. So the issue with them is that our downside is like, and the potential of losing is unlimited. So I wanted to know like how the allocation works in here. Because uh, you said that we should allocate the maximum risk and the maximum loss amount to um, 1% to 5% of the portfolio. But on the strangle, we don't have any maximum loss. Uh, so how does this work? Could you please explain? Thank you. All right. So this is a really good question. And this gets into a couple different areas, which I think will help when you think about max allocation and max loss. So when you're talking about straddles and strangles, of course, their potential loss is unlimited because the stock could go really high, stock could go really low. And so what the brokers do is they basically try to assume what a reasonable basis is for risk. And they use a model to look at implied volatility and standard deviation moves and calculate, okay, what would happen if the stock moved to an extreme, to one of these extreme standard deviation moves based on volatility. And that's how they come up with their margin calculations. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's basically what it entails, right? So the brokers, when you sell a straddle or strangle, have to put this initial margin requirement. Basically, they kind of like separate these funds in your account and say, look, you can't trade anything Beyond that, those funds are kind of earmarked for that particular position. The problem is is that people don't understand potentially that that is just the starting point. That's just the money to get into the game. But if risk continues to increase, if volatility explodes, if the market goes really far against you, some research and some data has suggested for sure that that margin balance that you see there 
can double, triple, quadruple, sometimes 5x in size. And so if you take that and you understand that concept, that initial margin is nothing more than your initial investment in the game. And you could have a lot more margin behind that to maintain the position. And again, the important point here is just to maintain the position. It doesn't mean that it's going against you. The stock could be perfectly centered right in the middle of your straddle or strangle and volatility in the market could be exploding. The stock could be exactly the same place, but yet the margin that's required to maintain the position has gone up. And this is difficult for some people because if they don't have the margin to handle the position, even though the stock may not be going against you, then they're forced to exit the position that could be a good position, could have a stock going maybe actually the direction that you want and still it for the time being just requires more margin to hold the position. That is sometimes really difficult. So if you go into these straddles and strangles and undefined risk trades, understanding that margin can and does explode and goes up by multiple factors, then you realize what we've said in our training for a long time, which is straddles and strangles should be at the very lowest end of the spectrum of your one to 5% allocation. 5% to me is like super max allocation. And I understand people, smaller accounts, we've covered this in podcasts where smaller accounts, you have no choice. You've got to be at the 5% level because even the smallest denomination spreads are probably somewhere around the 5% level, right? It's like you have to start there. But as you start to grow your account, you should considerably scale back the position size down into the lower digits, like the ones and twos, like below ones, especially when you do straddles or strangles, which require a larger account anyway, in my opinion. I don't think you should be doing them unless you have a significant amount of money that you've invested. Those should be even scaled back even further so that you allow room for margin to expand and contract. And it's very much like the accordion where like margin can expand and it can contract. And so you want to leave room for that to happen. So my suggestion would be always straddles and strangles are on the very lowest end of the spectrum, the one, 2% or under, and you keep the number of them collectively in the portfolio low as well. So you don't want to have an entire portfolio of really, really highly aggressive straddles and strangles without a lot of cash to support them, or just to use some defined risk strategies like iron butterflies, et cetera, buy some really cheap wings to control the margin expansion in your portfolio. So hopefully it helps out. As always, I appreciate the question. If you guys want to get your question answered here on the podcast, please head on over to optionalpha.com slash ask and click the big red button in the middle of the screen and leave me a private voicemail. Again, there's no software to download or install. It's incredibly easy. It goes directly to me. So let's get into the closing bell segment where we're going to discuss a new trade that we're making today in XOP. Now, the closing bell. Find out which stocks we're looking at right now, trades we're making, and hear our game plan moving forward. All right, so new trade we're making today is in XOP, and this one's a little bit of a hybrid. It is a brand new opening trade, but it also is really an adjusting trade because all we're actually doing is continuing the process of selling covered calls on our XOP stock position that we were assigned quite a long time ago in XOP, went through the big dip that the market had and subsequent rally, which was fine and manageable. And for many people, it really stung to go through a market drop like that. But we kind of had some indications and some technicals and all of the general stuff that we've even been talking about here where it was just getting to a really extreme level. And we knew if we could have enough patience and fortitude to hold through that, 
we'd probably be rewarded for that. And we were. So XOP went through quite a big drop. We were assigned middle of the drop, had a hold through it. And now it's kind of come back most of the way around, not totally the whole way that we wanted to. But during this entire process, we've been consistently selling covered calls against this 100 shares of stock that we were eventually stuck with. So we are just left with 100 shares of stock right now. And last month, we sold a covered call at the 60 strike. And that expired out of the money. I'm totally worthless, which is great. So reduce the cost basis of our shares. Now we're coming right back in again and selling another cover call on XOP. So it's just a single contract. It's something that I wanted to cover in the closing bell segment today because we don't often have these. In fact, this is the only stock position that we're still dealing with. Sometimes when we get assigned stock, we'll kind of deal with it for a little bit. And then as we near expiration, we'll close or convert it back over. In this case, we've held on to this for quite some time because it's just not a really big position. We get paid a dividend for holding long stock and XOP. So that helps out to reduce cost basis. And the option contracts are pretty liquid and they're pretty valuable so that we can reduce cost basis by meaningful amount, I feel like, by holding this. So really, it kind of checks a lot of boxes in the sense that we don't have a big position. It's 100 shares. It's very manageable for our account. We can manage it. It's definitely something that we feel like has gone through a bottoming process and can continue to rally if the markets do. And so we have no problem holding it. We, like I said, got rid of the, or let the other contract expire last month, which was the 60 strike calls. We're now selling the August 65 strike calls for $190. So that reduces our cost basis by about another $2 on this particular position. And stock right now is trading about $55 or so. So it's definitely a good jump from here. So stock would have to move up about $7 or so for us to basically remove all of the upside benefit having entered into this. So this is the great thing about cover calls to me is that you still keep a lot of the upside potential on the stock. In our case, the stock would have to move beyond 65 for this cover call to start being moot, if you will. The benefit of the cover call completely removes itself at $65, $67 where the break-even is. And at that point though, it still will require the stock to move up about $12 from the current price. So we participate in all of that in addition to getting an extra $2 roughly of cost basis reduction on our shares. So we're just going to continue this process and play the long game here with this position, see where it goes, take it month by month. If we feel like we don't want to hold it anymore, we can get rid of the position. We're not tied into it by any stretch. I'm not going to hold it forever. You know, like I want to hold it until I feel like my thought process and my thesis around XOP changes and I don't think it's changing right now. So I feel more than confident to hold it and continue to sell covered calls against it and try to help hedge my opinion by using cost basis reduction through these covered calls. And I thought it was a good one that we could talk about here. So again, we're selling the August 65 calls for $190, looking to hopefully let these things expire worthless or to let the stock blow past that level and potentially get assigned at a higher level. And that would be a good trade for us. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything. Free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com. All right, that's a wrap for this week's podcast episode here at Option Alpha. But before we go, let's keep the conversation going. As always, please connect with me on your favorite social media platform. Send us a message, a tweet, post, whatever. Share something with us everywhere at Option Alpha. 
and let us know what questions, ideas, thoughts came to mind after listening to today's show. If you thought it was helpful or not, or if you want to see more information, let us know so we can help get it queued up for another podcast episode. Again, I want to let you guys know what's coming up next week. So next week on the podcast, we're going to be doing a really cool little case study on FXI. So this was a position that we had sold where we not only got assigned, but we also had to go through assignments and adjustments. So I think I said assignments twice, but yeah, it was assignments and adjustments at the same time. Had to deal with dividends and all the dividend assignment stuff. I mean, it's a lot that happened in this position and still ended up working out pretty well. So it was a good case study that we're going to go through and kind of walk through this. If you have been wanting to see some of these case studies, and I think this one's one that kind of checks a lot of boxes. We can talk about a lot on this particular one. And so it's definitely one that you don't want to miss. So we'll be talking about that next week on the podcast, our FXI case study, where we went through assignments, adjustments, and how to deal with dividends all coming together for show number 184. As always, hope you guys truly enjoyed today's show. Got at least one thing out of it that you can apply right now to help you consistently play smarter more profitable trades. And until next time, happy trading.